we might discount the price a little bit and then we'll probably take a little bit less cash down payment to allow the borrower a little bit of extra capital to do improvements which only ultimately impacts us positively welcome to the get real podcast your high octane boost of full-on reality therapy for personal business and investing success with your host ron phillips because somebody's got to tell it like it is Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Get Real Podcast. Ron Phillips here with Heather Marchant. And I've got my buddy, Nick Legamaro with us today. We are going to talk about a really exciting topic. And Heather, we've been talking about this for quite a while. How do you pivot in the market when literally... That wasn't me. When it's so hard to get deals, like regular cash flowing property deals. We've been pivoting. Yep. Yep. Personally and as a company and everything else. And that is why we have Nick Legamaro, my buddy, who is not only is a good friend of mine, we've had tons of conversations about this, Nick. We've been talking about notes and the availability and the returns and the all of the, the benefits of it, also with some of the downsides of it. And that's what we want to talk about today is just let's talk a little bit about notes and why there is not the same, I guess, a challenge with the supply and demand as there is in the regular rental property space. Well, thanks yeah. for having me on, Ron. I mean, I think the main reason why there's more inventory on notes than there are on properties is because you can buy a note that was created yesterday. You can buy a note or that was created five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So there's inventory available at different levels across the board. The other thing that's cool about notes is that they can be anywhere, right? They don't have to be in your backyard. If you're going to be a fix and flip investor or a buy and hold investor, you may be looking in a specific geographical area for your needs, which really restricts the box that you can acquire in, right? So that's another cool thing. Just think about it from the whole idea. And I've said this many times and I always repeat it. We have to think like a bank. Yeah. You have to think like a bank and what do banks do? How do banks act? What do they do? And for us, that's, we're no different. And that's what we sort of teach. And that's what people should think about when they think about being a holder or a note creator, think about being the bank. For example, do you think Bank of America cares if they're loaning money on a property in Boise, Idaho or Cleveland, Ohio or Tampa, Florida? Do you think they care one bit? The answer is absolutely no. not. And the reason is they don't care because if they underwrite the file correctly, which they hopefully will, and they do, especially post-2008, we think we learned that lesson, but (laughs) they ultimately have the property as the collateral on the debt, period. So the borrower underwriting is important, but in my world, I think the asset is much more important than the borrower because that's the safety net, right? The safety Mm -hmm. net is the property in the event that the borrower doesn't perform. So it very rarely gets to that point, but if it ever does, and I can't predict the future, I sure like knowing that I have a piece of collateral that isn't going to drive down the road, isn't going to go away, that has value. And I think if we learned anything in the post-COVID environment right now, and with inflation, property values are going to go up. So from the position of being the lender, even though we don't get to take advantage of that appreciation or increase in value, what we do get is our risk gets mitigated because as that $100,000 note that I own against $150,000 property, let's say, that property goes to two fifty dollars in five years, 
I have a lot less risk because my value, uh, my loan to value or my investment value, whatever, however you want to look like it, however you want to look at it, is getting better every single day. If that, and I think the other thing too is that when you have that happen, they don't get to reset the interest rate or the terms of the loan unless they take you out of the loan in which you get your you get your invested capital back plus you get your return. Heather? Yeah. The other cool part too that I get excited about is that you're getting the property with the owner having some skin in the game where oh, you're acquiring wow. it at 75% of the value typically, right? right? So there's this big well, upside. At least the so, notes that we create and we sell, that's what they are. You can buy a note at 95% of loan of value, right? You can pay $95,000 for a note that's on a $100,000 property. So that just, you just need to be able to calculate your risk. With risk comes return. The yep. more risk, the higher return. The less risk, the lower the return, typically speaking. But the golden handcuffs on this whole thing is still the asset itself. And the asset, look, Amazon stock, well, that's probably a bad example. We'll probably not go to zero, okay? But you have a better chance of Amazon and Tesla going to zero than you have of a house going to zero value. Hell, the land's worth something. Yeah, so, exactly. So you can, your investment is never, the asset will never go to zero. Yeah. And if anything, we've learned over the time since the 50s and 60s and 70s, and as we get into the mid-2000s here almost, property values go up. They don't go down. And they surely don't go to zero. I do know that. Not very often. It's not that I've seen. I've never seen it. I had a client whose house burned to the ground and he got an insurance check and sold the property for $5,000, even with all of his money he yeah. recouped. So, <laughs> even so, a total um, hey, that's a hell of a business model. I don't think I want to implement it, but maybe yeah. something I don't think you're supposed to implement that one. That goes back. I think that yeah. I've seen that movie and I'm pretty sure the mob was involved. Well. <laughs> I'm going to say no. Yeah, no on that one. Hard um, pass. <laughs> so let's rewind a couple of and do just a couple of housekeeping things here because we're getting questions. I want to make sure that just because we're not answering the question now doesn't mean we won't. We will answer your question and I see your question. If anybody else has questions, just go ahead and start posting them. We'll go through them towards the end. I want to give Nick a proper introduction because I didn't. I know Nick really, really well. And so I just take it for granted that everybody else should know who he is and how awesome he is and what he's done in business. But since you probably don't, let me tell you a little bit about him. He creates notes and has created thousands of notes. Nick. I don't know. I stopped then, counting at 700. So and, and then north of that. <laughs> that's not necessarily unique, the ability to create notes. As Nick will tell you, there's mom and pop people that create notes like every day, all the time. There's billions of dollars of these notes, right? So what is unique is that Nick... Not only did he create those, but he created them in a way that allows him to allowed him to sell them uh, to a bank. So in order to sell them to a bank, you have to understand that they have to be right. <laughs> everything, all the I's have to be dotted. T's have to be crossed. Everything has right. And if it's not, well, then you can't sell them to a bank. That's for sure. Or you surely can't sell them for the value that you ultimately want to receive for them, right? Right. I always use the example of the... Of the, I use, I'm in Texas, so I use the Ford F 150 because that seems to be popular down in this neck of the woods, as they say. And you can have two identical 2015 Ford F 150s with 60,000 miles on them each, same color and everything, but one has been maintained and taken care of and is in pristine condition. And the other one's been used on the farm off road for the last six years and has been beat the crap, right? Which one has more value to the buyer when they go to buy it? 
same thing with notes. And if you don't take care of the notes and you don't stack the file correctly and you don't service the note and do the due diligence needed, the value on the open market drops tremendously. And that's what we try to teach. And that's what we try to provide to people that are looking to buy notes. And that's exactly what we do for ourselves because every note that we write, our intention is that we're going to hold them till they pay off, knowing that most of them won't make that full maturity or the, a large percentage of them will get sold. But I don't know which ones are going to get sold and which ones I'm going to keep. So I just do best business practices and make sure it's done right from the beginning. And I don't have to worry about any of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Pretty, I mean, we're on the end, at least I in my day-to-day right now am on the end of helping our clients qualify for financing and the process and the, man, it's a lot. So being the bank on the other end where you get to pick and choose what properties you buy instead of having to jump through all the hoops of qualifying sounds dreamy. <laughs> well, you remember, you're not buying a property though. You're controlling the property, right? This isn't about yeah. ownership. This is about control. That's what banks do. They control they don't own. And I always say it's being a lien lord, not a landlord. So it's sort of the same, but it's really not because we just want to get paid. We just want to get cash flow. And the way we get it is by securitizing uh, the property secures the debt that we put in place. And that's it. So it's a little bit different from obviously than going on and getting a traditional loan and having the asset to borrow against. But yeah, I just want to make sure that we that people. Yeah, understand. no, that was a good distinction. Yeah, because no, we don't own anything. We control everything. Own nothing. So maybe let's back up a step and talk about what's involved in this because everybody that's dealt with us and buying rental property knows that, like Heather said, this is. I don't know if it's complicated, but it's it's not easy. It's hard. Yeah. There's a lot that goes into it. They got to deliver all this crap to the bank, DNA samples and everything else. <laughs> and then you got the appraisal and all. You know, I mean, there's just tons that goes into that. I think one of the things that about notes, which guys, if you don't understand notes, basically what we're talking about is mortgages. We're talking about first mortgages, second mortgages. There are others, right? But we're specifically talking about first mortgages and second mortgages. And these first mortgages, Nick, those are the people who had to go through all that stuff. They're the people who had to qualify. They're the people who had to go through and the the appraisal was done and all of the paperwork is in line. And your company did all of that stuff with these buyers, created the whole note package. And from a, a note investor's perspective, once all of that stuff has been done, acquiring the note takes what? Takes as long as you wanted to take. The question is, there's literally 200 pages of due diligence, right? The question is, when you go into your checklist as a note buyer and you're checking all the boxes, which you should do, even on stuff that I do, I know mine's right, but you don't know that my stuff's right. So you have to verify. And my interpretation of what I think is acceptable may be different than yours. So we always recommend that if you're going to buy a note, whether it's from us or anybody else, that you follow some checklist and due diligence protocol to make sure that this is exactly what you're willing to buy and what the risk is relative to the file. I mean, not every property is the same. Texas is not the same as Ohio. Why is this? What's B? Oh, that's what it is. I just, I don't know, where is that coming from? I forgot I had this extra device in my office today. I'm going to turn this thing down. I got everything off. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Can we back up and talk about the structure of how this works a little bit? Because we've had a lot of clients asking us questions over the last, oh, three or four weeks. So when you find a property that you are going to do the mortgage on, right? Mm-hmm. Are they typically, I mean, I know that's probably not all the same every time, but there's typically a homeowner 
in the property or is there typically are you buying a vacant house and doing this with place like rehab and placing an owner in there well at the very beginning before we can go sell it it has to be vacant so whether we buy it vacant or however we acquire it we can't sell it without it being vacant to put a seller financing. In fact, I do a, sort of the opposite a lot of times what you guys do. I look for portfolios of rental properties hmm. from tired landlords that are tired of being landlords, for example. <laughs> and I turn those and I teach or I show how to convert those into owner finance properties or assets versus being a landlord, be a lean lord, not a landlord. Okay. And so that's how we look at stuff like that all the time. Just in typical terms, yeah, we got to acquire a property just like buy and hold investor would. The difference is that I'm my modeling is different than others because I'm looking at the amortization and the payment stream that I'm going to get as a result of creating that note. So, but yeah, we started a property, we either fix it or we sell it as is, depending on the condition of it. We market for a buyer to sell on terms to. We find the buyer, they go through the, an underwriting process, just like anybody that would go to a traditional lender, mm -hmm. we go, they go through that same process. We just have a little bit different criteria than a big box bank would have. They go to servicing, it goes to underwriting, we approve them, we close it just like they would normally get closed at a title company or an attorney's office. And then once that's done, they make a payment to a servicing company, just like you would make a payment to whoever your payment provider would be. If it's a bank, sometimes it goes to the bank. If they sell it, it could go to somebody else. And that's how we've done it literally a thousand times. So at that point is when an investor could come in and purchase that first lien, right? That is when they would come in. That's like once that first in. payment is made, there's an owner or living before in the house. the first payment made. Sometimes we have this stuff pre-sold. Think about how a bank does it. A lot of times the banks already have your note sold before you even closed on it, right? They, yeah. they have you underwritten and you go, what do you mean? I just bought this house last week and now they're changing <laughs> the servicer? It's like, it happens, all, you get a hello and goodbye letter, you get a goodbye letter yeah. from Bank of America, you get a hello <laughs> letter from FCI or whoever, whoever the servicer yeah. is and goes, what the heck? I haven't even made my first payment yet. But that happens all the time. Okay. Okay. That was one question that we've had because a lot of the times the photos we're being sent from your team are of a vacant house, which makes sense because it's just been sold, just started. It's the beginning of that loan. Well, Correct. we would never, you would never see anybody in the house. The, the Once they're in the house, it's their house. Remember, I'm the bank. Does Bank of America go into the house after that's there? Probably not. But yeah, there will never be anybody in the house because... It's not going to look like it's lived in, in other words, because no. it, it wasn't lived in until you sold it. And once you've sold it, you can't get in and take pictures because they... Yeah, we're not going back. It doesn't matter. I don't really care right. when they move in or not, as long as they make the payment, right? I think it's the refinance distinction. That's I think that's all. Like someone yeah. who refinanced. So, okay. Yeah, they go refinance and then there's an appraisal involved or inspection involved, then that's a whole different story. But we're not, this is like, would be considered like a brand new house, right? A brand new uh -huh. house doesn't have anybody in it. It is a brand new house to a certain extent to whoever is going to turn become the homeowner. Awesome. Yeah, and yeah. So this is, I think everybody who owns their own home, this is exactly like you went and bought your house. You have a mortgage on your home, but you own the home. The mortgage is, is secured by a deed of trust right? Depending on the state, right? But mm -hmm. it's secured by a deed of trust and that says you're going to pay it back or the bank has recourse against mm -hmm. you and the property. It's the exact same thing, except for instead of you buying the property, going and getting a mortgage and doing all of that, you're literally, you're buying the mortgage 
from Nick's company or whoever, right? You're mm -hmm. buying the mortgage. You're the one then who's going to collect all of the payments coming from the servicing company. And I think that's another distinction. Most of the people who got there and create notes, I don't think they use servicing companies. They collect the payments themselves. And well, nowadays, I think they have to use servicing companies. But back in the day when I created notes, we didn't use a servicing company. We just collected the payments from the tenants. Well, today, or for the owners, this servicing company literally takes any investor kind of out of the equation. You just get money in your bank every month. Well, I, the best thing to do is think of it just like, how does Bank of America or Chase or Wells Fargo do what they do on the house that you bought? You never have any correspondence with the bank yeah. ever. Why would you call the bank and your foundation repaired or your roof replaced or your HVAC goes out? You would never call them. You might call them if you can't make the payment. But other than that, they don't really care what you do to your house as long as you make the payment. That's it. Yeah. Yep. There's no difference. And that's exactly how people need to think and act if they're going to be the bank or be a note holder. That's basically it. And you know, at the end of the day, that after you've underwritten the file or you looked at the collateral files, that you feel like you have a solid investment and that the property value is greater than your owed, right? So you yeah. don't want to have a note that the property is worth $100,000 and the note's one twenty-five. That's what California used to do, right? Yeah. Look at that, look at that <laughs> yeah. got them. They just hope and pray for appreciation to offset that. And that's fine. That's just not a business model that I would personally follow. That's for sure. Yeah. And most of your stuff, it looks like the owners are paying 25% down, right? There's probably $25,000 maybe, but it's probably mm. closer to a 10% down payment. Okay. We almost always take 10% down unless there's some other uh, circumstance. Maybe the house is livable and needs some upgrades and we might discount the, not discount it, but we might, well, we'll discount the price a little bit and then we'll probably take a little bit less cash down payment to allow the borrower a little bit of extra capital to do improvements, which only ultimately impacts us positively because the more value they can add to the property, the more secure our investment is because the value goes up and our balance remains the same or actually goes down as they start to make payments. Yeah, yeah I man. I, the the, the so second, I think, Heather, I mean, that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Is that there's, I think part of the yeah. thing that I really like when attracted me to this, Nick, when we first spoke a long, long time ago about how you structure your notes is that there's a second and you hold the mm -hmm. second, right? You keep the second position. Then I think if we can talk about anything, let's talk about what that means to the person who owns the first. If there's any problem, what does it mean that you're in second position and that these people actually have put some money down, whether that's 5% or 10% and that the first is in a 75% position and that there's a second and then there's money in? What, what does that mean to a person? Well, I mean, I know what it means to me. And so let's just talk about the hierarchy of things, right? First liens are always the priority liens over a second lien or a junior lien, right? So those will always get paid first if it ever goes into a thing. And for me being in the second lien position, I would love to hold every single note that I write, but I just physically can't do it because I run out of cash. I run out of capital, right? Yeah. Unless I come up with some other way to hypothecate or do something along those lines, which I do. But at the end of the day, when I sell that first lien, I sell it, recapitalize my business. That's the only reason why I do it. Because I mean, nine and a half, ten percent yield is a phenomenal return, but I get run out of money because I'm getting paid back over 30 years. Even though it's a handsome return, I still need more cash to redo do the business. So I will say this as 
I don't really care if I'm in the second lean position, ninth lean position. I could care less. And the reason why I could care less because I will always get paid, period. I will always get paid. I may not get paid today. I may not get paid tomorrow. It might take me a year to get paid, but I will get paid because I am the bank. Banks always get paid. But who else will get paid? If I'm in the second position and I just told you I'm going to get paid, who else has to get paid before me? It's whoever in a senior position, which is the first lien holder. So that's the beauty of what we do. Now, that's not always going to be the case. I don't always have some of the notes we sell. They're only first liens only on them to begin with, but doesn't change the dynamics of the due diligence process or the, or the, the, or the, protection, or the yeah. protection of the note. If you're in first lien position and there's a second lien position and there's a problem with loan and they're not paying the first, the first can foreclose. And let's just talk through that really quick, right? If the first goes and forecloses on the property, goes through the process of foreclosure. If you were the second lien holder, what does that mean to you? Because if you do nothing, I mean, you wouldn't do that, but if you do nothing, what happens in the foreclosure? Well, basically what happens in the foreclosure is that if it goes to foreclosure and let's just say I have a $25,000 second and the first lien holder is at $100,000. Easy math, okay? And let's just say it goes to foreclosure and it forecloses for $120,000, okay? Well, then of that $120,000, the $100,000 gets paid to the first lien holder because that's what it says. Then the next remaining balance, the next $20,000 would go to the second lien holder, which would be me, and I would lose $5,000 on that transaction because there wasn't enough money that came from the sale to pay both the first and the second lien holder. Now, if it goes and it's sold for 150, for example, then the same thing applies. 100 goes to the first lien holder. Full balance gets paid to me as a second lien holder, which is in this situation is 25. And then the remaining balance would pay any junior creditors to that, or it will go. It actually becomes the owner of records money. They get that money back. A lot of people don't realize that. But in all honesty, very, very few of these ever go to foreclosure because there's other options before you even have to go to foreclosure, such as a deed in lieu of foreclosure. Okay. We go to the homeowner, the borrower and say, hey, look, you're in default. We'll take the deed in lieu of foreclosure so we don't mess your credit up. And maybe we give them some cash for that. Or we give them what's called cash for keys, which you guys probably know in the rental space. Same yep. thing is that you vacate the house, you give us the keys, and then we'll give you X dollars. And that could be a portion of their equity position that we take out. And then we take control of the property. And then we can just repeat the process if we choose to. The third option is that it goes to foreclosure and it goes to foreclosure. And then that was the example that we just went through. And then, then you're completely out of the deal. It's the exit, right? So one way keeps you from exiting if you choose not to. The other way is a permanent. If it goes to foreclosure and somebody else buys it out, then that all that debt gets satisfied and you're out of the deal. Then you get your money back and you just go do it again. You know? Yeah. So that was one part I didn't understand when we first met Nick, like how that first and second lien positions work. Because I've never had a second mortgage on any of my properties or anything like that. So I think that's really helpful and important and a good distinction. Let's answer a couple of the questions in here. Okay. The first one is, can you do this in your self-directed IRA? And I would uh, say, hell yes. And I would highly recommend it and find an administrator that can help you do that. There's administrators that are extremely knowledgeable in the financing aspect of this uh, on the creative side. And there's other ones that are not. 
and you want to make sure that uh, you can. But yeah, it's a great, it's we fantastic. do it all the time. It's a phenomenal, I mean, there's about $2 trillion, trillion with a T, of money sitting in self-directed retirement accounts that's sitting there in the, in the form of cash. They're just getting, Which getting, it's getting annihilated right now by inflation. Annihilated. Are they paying negative at the bank and CD level yet? I know it's getting pretty close. I, I don't think so, but it's so small that it's, you don't even know that you're getting anything. So, I mean, it, no. it, I don't think it's quite negative yet, but it's close. Um, but I mean, God, we know that the government has admitted to 5.4% inflation, which means it's at least double that. And that means that if you have a million dollars sitting in a self retirement account or sitting in the bank, that in a year, yeah. the buying power of that money is going to be $900,000. In other words, you have lost $100,000 worth of buying power. That's one of the things that I think is really, really important. Let's say you can get 10% on your money on an annualized basis. Well, then you're making $100,000 and your money is not sitting in cash. It's sitting in an asset, right? And that asset mm -hmm. in this particular case is protected by real estate and real estate, like Nick already said, it increases in value because of inflation. All of the parts that go into a house, as everybody knows right now, they're more expensive. And based on inflation, they're not going to get cheaper. They're going to get more expensive. And yeah. so I think the safety net, like Nick was talking about before, I mean, it's pretty good for a note. Plus, good grief, you're getting a really, really attractive return, like Nick was talking about earlier, in an asset that keeps pace with the, with the inflation. Yeah, you can probably get you can probably get returns cash. like that on the market, but it's not secure, and it can go up and it can go down, and it's like playing musical mm -hmm. chairs sometimes. But yeah, self-directed IRAs, Roths, HSAs, those are all great investment to put it in because you know. Here's the thing: you can always sell the note, just like you can buy yeah. it. It's very liquid. It's not as liquid as stock that you could trade in a matter of minutes, but you can literally sell that note that promissory note and get cash in as little as three days. If the borrower has the ability to underwrite the file, we usually give about a five day look, evaluate the collateral files. And then from there, another five days to close it, put money in escrow, get it paid, get all the originals back out. So it's a fairly quick, it's a lot faster than selling a house. I could tell you that, but there's trade-offs. There's advantages and pros and cons to either being a landlord or a lean lord. At the end of the day, you have to identify what your risk level is, your tolerance for risk is, what your ultimate and return you're looking for. And I always say do both. I mean, you can do both because it's hard to lobby against appreciation and prices on houses right now, right? But at the same time, you go to the other side of the coin, you have an eviction on moratoriums that gets extended and extended and keeps getting extended. You may never get paid on it. So pick your poison. I mean, there's investors out there that have not made a nickel on a rental property in the last 18 months because their tenants aren't paying them and they can't get them out. So the property's gone up way in value, but so what if you can't pay your debt? Because the banks will eventually get paid for that. Yeah. Another question. I have a list here and we're running okay. low on time. So I thought I'd just right, hammer these out. So who is the servicer of the loans and what is their monthly fee? I believe that's charged to the homeowner, but I wanted to double check. So the stuff that we create, we make sure that the servicing is part of the payment. Okay. So not all notes are written that way. And that's something you need to make sure that if you're going to buy a note from some place and you're part of your due diligence, you want to make sure that it, you want to know who is paying for servicing assuming that it's not self-service. Everything we write, it's part of the payment. It's somewhere between, depending on who the servicer is, somewhere between 15 and $40. There again, we pass it, that's a pass-through that goes to the borrower. Yeah. 
The servicer is depending is geographically specific. Not all servicers service all states. In the state of Texas, where I do a lot of note creation, I use a fairly uh, servicer called August REI. They're out of Dallas. Mm -hmm. If I do stuff outside of Texas, then I might use somebody like FCI or somebody like that. But I will say this about servicers. The other value in servicers is they escrow the taxes and insurance, right? So you don't mm -hmm. have to screw around with that. The borrower is part of their PITI payment, which is principal interest taxes and insurance. That escrow part is held by the servicer. The other cool thing about it is that they collect the payment from the borrower and then they disperse the funds accordingly to the first lien holder, second lien holder, whoever needs to get paid. So we don't actually even touch any of the money coming in from the borrower on the sale of the property. That money gets paid directly to the servicer. They ask as an escrow agent, basically. And then once that money clears, if it's a personal check, they clear the check. And then if $1,000 goes to you for the first lien payment and 200 goes to me, that's what they do with the money as it comes in. Plus, they stay in and they help manage the collections almost like a property manager would in, in right. a landlord situation, right? So they're going to act on behalf of the lender, which is you or me or whoever the bank is in this situation. They're going to go after to collect what's due and make sure that the payment is made and, and take care of all the paperwork okay. stuff. So it depends, but they all act fairly the same. So another question people have is when we get the copy of the first lien, there's a payment on there that the tenant is going to make. It's separated by the first and second, correct? So the payment on the first lien, there's an additional payment on the second lien in the paperwork, correct? So the way that we write it, this is not how everybody does it, or it's not, not a requirement or the law or anything, is that when they get a payment letter, okay? So if the payment says the payment's going to, and it breaks it down between the first lien, the second lien, taxes, insurance, servicing, they get mm -hmm. a payment and it says $1,500. They're going to make one payment to the servicer for $1,500. That servicer is going to take that payment. And based on the payment letter, though, they will determine where that money goes. Okay. So there's only one servicer. Now, where it gets a little bit tricky, uh, if the first lien holder decides they don't want that servicing company to use it, and they want to move it from servicer A to servicer B, then it becomes a little bit of a challenge because now then the borrower is making two payments. But there's really no really good reason, in my opinion, to move it from a servicer unless there's something catastrophic that's... I don't know that I've ever moved... Even the stuff I buy, if it's not the servicer I prefer, I very rarely move the servicer. It's just not mm -hmm. worth and, and servicing. Services are regulated, guys. It's like, like title companies or closing attorneys. You can't just yeah. take people's money, right? Hey. I mean, the, the regulated companies. So, yeah. Heather, yeah. Yeah. So, what we got? I have like two more. So, this one's a little complex to ask. I've, I've been reading it like over and over again. So, if what is the difference between your underwriting process and maybe a big box bank's underwriting process? Maybe just the key differences, because I know we've discussed this before that most people can't qualify for the big box, the process, but also the criteria. So, can you explain briefly the difference between what you accept versus a big box bank? Yeah. So the process is identical. Okay. The process doesn't change. What changes is that the bank Banks have a very specific set of guidelines. It's either yes or it's no. Meaning mm -hmm. if the DTI is greater than 43%, it's a no. If the borrower doesn't have a social security number and they have an ITIN number, but they still have the right to work in the United States, it's a no. If mm -hmm. their credit score doesn't meet a certain minimum credit score requirement, then it's a no, right? Well, for us, because we're really considered what's called like a small cap lender, 
there's only two things that we're required to do uh, under Dodd-Frank, okay? Because we're all following Dodd-Frank. One is that we have to prove that the borrower. What's that? Unfortunately. Oh, actually, I thought that at first, when it first came out, I can't to stand it. You're days. never going to convince me, Nick. It's okay. I know. Well, here's why it doesn't matter to me. One, I don't pay the underwriting fee. The borrower does. Okay. Number two, it's just another third party that helps vet that borrower and just gives us another layer of security and from a professional side of the deal. But to your point, is it really necessary? No. But the reason why I was there is because back in the day, banks were writing scrupulous loans and making bad deals. And sure they were. Now everybody's paying the price for it now. And mainly it's the borrower that's paying the price. And that's right, who, I, I completely derailed you, man. Go ahead. I, I, I you answer the question. Where, what was the question, Heather? I'll get They say they are. Number two is that we have to show they have the financial capacity to make that payment. So if the payment's going to be a thousand dollars a month, we got to show that they have the ability to make a thousand dollars a month, and that's it. Everything else is just a consideration. We have to consider credit score. We have to consider DTI. We have to consider if they're self-employed versus being a W two employee. Have to do consider and consider consider, and that becomes the ultimate underwriting file. And then from there, we can approve it. What's interesting though is that banks change the rules in the middle of the game all the time. And what I mean by that is as when all this stuff started hitting the fan, the credit score all of a sudden went from 620 to 650 minimum, the 690, the 710. FHA says the minimum credit score, I think it's 520. You know what the average credit score is for an FHA loan right now? The posted minimum is 520. 550. It's like over 700. Oh. It's a crazy number. Hmm. Because it's disqualify you some other way. Rates are historically low right now, but doesn't mean you can go down to the bank and qualify. In fact, depending on who you believe, up to 70% of the population cannot go down and get a traditional bank loan for some reason. If you don't check every one of those boxes, you're out. It's just that simple. So yeah. I don't care if the rates are low or not. So that's basically it. Matter of fact, I was just having this conversation the other day. I just looked at the last four borrower files that I just took in. The The highest DTI on the last four I brought in was like 27%. 27%. And they, and they, and they still couldn't qualify. I mean, this is. Oh, they could never go. I qualify him in two seconds. I just qualified a guy that had like a 13% DTI. He had no debt. That's insane. That's insane. And guys, if you don't know what DTI is, that's debt to oh, income yeah, sorry ratio. About that, I assume. Right. So much. the lower the number, the better. So when mm -hmm. Nick is saying the debt to income ratio, right? That's what it is. How much debt yeah. do you have relative to how much money you make? Yeah. So if yep. it's 27 or if it's 13, that's incredibly good. Oh, that's yeah. incredible. Well, the, 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 the minimum or the maximum is 43% is right. what it is. Yeah. They, may, they may actually raise it a little bit. I don't really pay that close attention to traditional banking because it changes about every hour whoever they want to qualify for that week. So I don't really follow it that ultimately close. But anyway, hope that answers the question on the underwriting requirements. And our yeah. default rate is, is about 100 times less than the national default rate. So hmm. I'll take my buyers over theirs any day of the week. Yeah, no kidding. And then the last question, I probably get this one the most frequently, is will there in the future be an option to have a partial loan so that you give maybe 10% or 20% of that first lien. So are you talking about the note holder that buys the note turn around and partialing it? Are you talking about yeah, like putting in $10,000 instead of $100,000 and being in it with other investors? 
So that's like fractionalization or pooling and stuff. There's people that do it. I either sell all or none. So when you get a note from me, you have 100% ownership in that deal. Now, what you can also do if you own that note free and clear, like, you know, there's nothing that, that it's your note. You can surely take that first note, lean, and you can go partial and sell a portion of the payment stream and get some of that money back and then get your money on the back end. There's people that do that all the time. For me, I do not pool funds. I'm not regulated. I don't have a fund or any of that stuff. That's not what notes are typically for. It's like selling a car, right? I mean, you can I can sell you the car. There's no, it stops me from selling you the car. The note's already been created, right? It's already done. What happens before then, it's a different story. So yeah. the answer is that I don't sell notes for partial amounts, if that's the question you're asking. Okay. But there are people that you could probably pool your money into and They'll give you, everybody put 10000 and everybody's got 10% ownership of a $100,000 note, and right. they divvy it up like that. But that's a lot of work. I already do a lot of work as it is. So. <laughs> All right. Um, what else we got? There's one more on here. Heather, did this you see it? Asked, yeah. So Sean, yeah, yeah. Sean asked, are there limits on the number of these? Like, is there a cap on how many of these you can buy? No. I mean, is there a cap on how much Tesla stock you can buy or mm -hmm. Amazon stock or how much gold you can buy? Or how much you know, there's no, because it's a commodity. I mean, you can, it's just like anything else. You want to go buy whatever, as long as you have the money to do it, then you can do yeah, it. Yeah. So the reason for that question, I'm Sean, we get it. When you're buying investment properties, there's just this cap that Fannie Mae has put on investors, unfortunately. And there isn't on this. And the reason is because you're not leveraging, right? So if Nick's company is selling a note, that's a hundred thousand dollar note and you buy it, you're paying $100,000 for the note. You own the $100,000 note and there's no financing. So there's no one to tell you or to put a cap on you. There's no one yeah. that can do that. You're only capped by however many $100,000 notes you can buy. That's your cap. Well, right? and to that point and to what Heather was asking on the partial side of it or the fractionalization, you can take these notes and you can go down to some banks and you can do what's called hypothecation. And I don't want to get into a long description of that, but you can go borrow back, just like you would go borrow on a property. You can take that $100,000 note, for example, that you're getting 9.5% on, and you can go back and use that as a collateral, all right, do a, an allonge and collateral assignment to the bank and borrow 70% of that value at 5%. And then you're creating your own little arbitrage model at that point in time. So you can sort of accomplish the same thing like that. Not all banks do it. It's probably going to be specific maybe to that. But we have a lot of people, they'll go buy a million dollars in notes and they're getting a 10% return. And then they'll go borrow $700,000 at a 5%. They're collecting money coming in and they're paying money going out. And they'll make a, even a bigger return on the investment. Now you're adding risk because if that borrower doesn't pay you, you still owe the bank. Mm -hmm. But that's all part of the game, right? You got to decide what your risk levels and tolerances are. Yep. Cool. Anything right. else? That's all my questions I have. I think that's it. Man, I, there was some great comments in here. Appreciate it. It was very informative. I know, especially for the people who have been looking at this seriously, Nick, and just trying to figure out mm -hmm. what it is and how to wrap their arms around it. And I think this is really... You, you know, really I don't think it's a whole stuff. lot different, honestly, than if you were going to go out and buy stock right? Or you're going to go buy some other commodity. You're going to do a little bit of research on it. You're going to figure out if that's if my projected return. I always look at what's the upside gain relative to For the sure. downside risk. That's how I look at things personally. And 
there's very, very few things that have collateral or secure by something that you can generate a decent return on besides this. And that's why I do it. And I'll say one last thing. This is exactly what banks do, right? And I always look at it. If it's good enough for banks, it's probably good enough for most, right? I'm not saying for everybody. And you can make the depreciation argument if you choose. I get it. But at the end of the day, it's obviously the banks have figured out a way to make this extremely profitable for them by controlling, not owning. And until I see something differently, I'm not going to probably change the way I do it. And there's 50 different ways you can make money in real estate. This is just one of them. And just that depends on what you're comfortable with. And I love it because I can do it virtually from anywhere and I don't have to worry about it. That's the thing. I don't have to my liability is like nothing because I'm just the bank. Banks don't have liability on the house. They want to make sure it's insured. And you want to make sure the homeowner has insurance in case of any kind of event. But at the end of the day, that's it. So hope that helps out. We can probably put together a Q&A. And I think if I would just say, if you're just interested in buying something, there's all the collateral documents and files. And probably there's a cool. checklist somewhere that we have. There's- there's more than you will ever want to read. Not, I, can, I can tell you that there's <laughs> way more documents than you'll ever want to look at in your whole life. I've seen the packets. <laughs> uh, yeah, they are. Well, but it's all part of what we do and why it's done that uh, way. It's protecting I, I, investor. I think it goes back to what you said earlier. If you just think about the house that you purchased and what you signed. Yeah. That's what Nick has in his I mean, file, it, I mean, right? so you, all those documents, all the yep. time and it's all the same. It's all there. It just looks a little different because if you don't have a W-2 job at Frito-Lay getting a check every two weeks, it's different than when you own your own landscaping company and you're getting paid in an entirely different capacity. doesn't mean you still don't make money. doesn't mean you're not a good borrower. Just different, right? That's all that it yeah. is. So, all right. Cool, man. Nick, really appreciate you, man. Thanks for stopping by and hanging Anytime. out with us and answering tons of questions. All Thanks, right, you buddy. guys. Have a good one. Take care. This has been the Get Real Podcast. To subscribe and for more information, including a list of all episodes, go to GetRealEstateSuccess.com.